new gun legislation in Canada? Does it go far enough? What else should we be doing? And beware of the birds. They're nesting right now and protecting their precious eggs from the likes of humans like you. But first, wildfire season is upon us. We're going to find out what our investments in prevention are getting us this summer in B.C. Last year's heat dome was a wake-up call to the devastating impact of climate change, and the impact on our province was massive. Lives were lost. But also, look at what happened to Lytton. The province is taking measures to prepare. They are investing big time. And joining me on the line now is the Honourable Katrine Conroy, the BC Minister of Forests. Good morning. Good morning, Raji. So what's the outlook on wildfire season in BC? Well, right now it's pretty cool and wet throughout the province, but we still have to be prepared. I mean, we we believe that by the end of uh, July, August, that the heat is going to be back, so we have to be ready. Okay, so we're expecting that heat to come back. Now, people are looking around us today and going, like you said, yes, it's quite wet. Does that have any impact? Is the is the ground absorbing that moisture? Um, yeah, so it does have an impact, and it, it uh, makes it, you know, it ensures us that we will not have, we're pretty sure we won't be having any kind of uh, heat domes like we had last summer, but you never know. I, I, I'm not a meteorologist, and even our meteorologists are, meteorologists are saying that uh, we need to be, you know, prepared just in case, but, you know, it's 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 looking okay. I mean, we, we need to worry about flooding right now, but yeah. uh, it's, as far as wildfires go, we're, we're feeling somewhat confident that we're not going to have an early start to the season. I mean, there are fires right now in the province, but substantially less than there was last year. Okay, so there is some silver lining to this wet weather we've been having, so that's good to hear. That's the one silver lining. Yes, (laughs) Um, and yet uh, you're saying we can still expect that, that there will be wildfires as there are currently. Yeah, I think that, you know, we can't rule out wildfires in this province. Um, Hopefully we won't have the the year that we had last year, but um, we will, you know, so we're, we're doing the work that needs to be done to, to try to mitigate the effects of wildfires. Yeah, what did we learn from last year's heat dome? Well, we learned that um, it's, you know, it comes on suddenly. Um, we learned that we need to be prepared for it, and, and there's things that we can do um, together as the province, municipalities, individuals, to protect our homes. So many people lost their lives, as you know, uh, during that heat dome, uh, people died, hundreds of people died. It was it was enough people that there was a larger problem at play, yet the messaging at one point turned on the public and said, uh, individuals have to take responsibility for this. In terms of supports and communication to vulnerable people, is that going to happen again? Well, I, I'm hoping that we won't have a heat dome like we had last summer, and and the weather showing that 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 we probably won't. But we need we still need to be prepared. So we've uh, emergency management management BC has, has been doing work to get emergency uh, alert systems in place to to make sure that we're prepared for it. And we all need to be prepared. I mean, the, the, one of the issues is like the Lower Mainland, for instance, which is predominantly not a really hot part of our problems province. Uh, doesn't a lot of people don't have air conditioning they don't you know they're just not prepared for this kind of heat or that kind of heat that we had last summer so you know we do need to get prepared and and uh, you know just like we have to be prepared for wildfires so how can that preparedness occur like how can we how can the message get to the people who need it to vulnerable individuals that they need to do some work on their own 
Well, make sure that you've you've got uh, water on hand, and and that if you if you are getting hot, you need to get help. You need to you know reach out to your neighbors. You know, find out who your neighbors are if you don't know already, so that your neighbors can check on you. If you were one of the problems was um, you know fragile seniors who are by, living by themselves. Yeah. You know, making sure that if you do have a neighbor that's a fragile senior, to make sure that they're okay. Keep in touch with your neighbors. Yes. Do you think people understand that for coming out of last year's uh, wildfire season? I hope so. I mean, I hope so, Raji. It, it's, uh, you know, it was definitely a wake-up call for so many people in the province, and, and we need to be, you know, just make sure we get that message out. Uh, Katrine, we saw a budget increase massively. Uh, budget 2022 provided $359 million in new funding to protect British Columbians from wildfires. Can you tell us where some of that money is going? Uh, yeah, I would be happy to. It's actually the largest investment in, in the history of BC Wildfire Service, and it's been something they've been asking for for years. So we're doing, we're actually transforming the service into a year-round service so that it's not just about uh, responding to fires and recovering from fires. It's actually doing that prevention and mitigation and, and doing the preparedness. So of that, um, we are investing $90 million in, in community grants for the Fire Smart program. And I, I can't talk enough about the Fire Smart program, how great it is, what people can do. Like, not only can, uh, do we as a province have to work to mitigate against wildfires, but so do communities, municipalities, uh, First Nations communities, but also um, individuals. And there are a lot of things people can do. And there's a great, uh, a lo- there's a lot of information on the firesmart.ca website that people can go to. But we've also invested that $90 million so people can uh, apply for grants and uh, do the work in their, commu- in their own communities. And individuals can do the work at home. Yeah, you talked there about prevention and getting communities and individuals involved as well. Um, can, how can communities get involved? Well, communities can apply for the grants that through uh, the Union of BC Municipalities for uh, communities that might be have a lower risk of, of wildfire, they can apply for up to $50,000. While those communities that might have a greater risk of wildfire, they can apply, apply for up to 150000 And we did, you know, we saw last year the Premier and I flew over the province. We stopped in communities. We visited. So we, we, we saw the destruction and we talked to people. And one of the communities we did fly over and, and, and stop and visit with was Logan Lake. And they have been a fire smart program for, for a number of years now, many years. And, but you could see the, what they had done had prevented their community from, from the fire because you could see the wildfire came right up to the edge of where they had done the mitigative work and, and it turned away. That's incredible. And so we, we saw the, yeah, we saw the results, and it was really incredible. So, you know, the, the communities know, know that they you know, need to do that work, and we are doing that work. And one of the things we're doing, Raji, is, is more um, prescribed burning and, and working with uh, First Nations for uh, cultural burning. Um, one of the areas we've done uh, a lot of pre- uh, early burning, prescribed burning, is over in the East Kootenays, for instance, because that's an area that still it isn't getting as much rain as the rest of us, and so it, it's a concern, that whole Rocky Mountain trend. So we have been doing uh, prescribed burning in that area to, to try to get rid of the fuel in the forest. So, you know those things that, you know the underground underground growth that uh, that can get dry, and and that's where you know it's like kindling for lightning, for instance. When does that strategized burning occur? Is it happening now? Oh sure, yeah, it's been happening for oh, well over a month now, and. Um, it's, uh, I mean, it's concerning for people when they see a fire, but we're trying right. to let the communities know that this is a prescribed fire. It's controlled. Um, we have people on from wildfire service as well as regional districts, as well as people that have community forests. 
you know, who are getting those grants that are doing that work because they just see the benefits of it. Finally, uh, you mentioned Logan Lake there. Uh, what did they do that was successful? What worked for them? They worked as a team, as a community, regional district, municipality, individuals who did preparation around their homes, for instance, you know, moving your firewood away from your home, which is something I did last year. I mean, it's, it, you want yes. your firewood close to your home because right. that's, it's in the, well, especially in the interior. It's a winter, there's snow, you want to go outside and grab yeah. that wood. But it's got to be away from your home. It's right, it's kindling up, it's up beside your home. Sure. Look at your trees around your home and, and you know, limb them up for a, a certain height. I think it's two meters so that, uh, you know, it's, the sparks on the ground can't reach yes. up and catch the fires, you know, and, and maybe take out some of those older trees that are really at, that are close to your home that are a hazard. But there's things communities can do too, like doing that undergrowth, you know, getting rid of the undergrowth, undergrowth the, the um, uh, you know, just to do some of that burning, that mitigation that needs to be done just to protect your community. So as long, you know, if everybody's on, you know, aware of what they need to do. We talked to firefighters who really felt that, you know, if they had year-round work, which yeah. is usually firefighters just work part-time, but sure. you know, if they had year-round work, they could do that mitigation because who better to understand what is at risk for fire than firefighters? Yeah, it sounds basic, but it, it makes a very big difference. Katrine, thank you yeah. for being on our program this morning. Oh, much appreciated, Raji. Yeah, this is something that I hope everybody will take to heart this year. Bill C-21 is a firearms control legislation that would freeze the import, sale, and transfer of handguns. With with, uh, the mass shootings that have happened in the States, including the recent one at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, is now the right time for us to take this step in Canada? We're welcoming Cash Heed on the program now. He's the former BC Minister of Public Safety and Solicitor General. Cash, good morning. Good morning, Raji. So what did you think of the legislation tabled by the federal government? I think that's what we need to do right now, given the fact that uh, not only is the United States going through this incredible crisis, we have a crisis here in Canada, and we need to act before it gets worse. And I know other countries that have implemented gun control uh, legislation to deal with mass shootings, to deal with other gun violence that's occurring within their communities have had success of getting in front of the problem. The United States is an anomaly, and there's no way we are going to be able to deal with that situation, that means the society as general, unless they were to reduce the number of guns available. And I think the legislation here in Canada is wise at this particular time. The more we can tighten it, the more we are going to be able to save people's lives. Let's talk about timing. Uh, New York Times says that Canada is a country with one of the world's highest gun ownership rates outside of the United States. What do you make of the timing? Why is this move important in Canada now? Well, the statistics, we've got to be aware of the statistics. My understanding is, for example, the United States, 90 per 100 people own guns. Canada, we're about 30 per 100. And if you look at how that's broken down, you've got provinces and territories which have a lot of hunting that have the highest rates, such as the Yukon and Saskatchewan. So I think we have to be careful here. But that said, when you look at it based on the frequency of events, and the per capita gun ownership here in Canada, we've got to tighten things. So these people that are going to use guns, whether, whether it's to kill someone, commit crimes, or even 
kill themselves through suicide, which is significantly higher in every country. We've got to deal with that situation because, Raji, right now we have easy access to firearms in Canada, and most of those firearms come in illegally through the United States and get it gets in the hands of, for example, some of the gang people that are involved in the violent nature on our streets. Is there any way, though, for us to stop the guns coming in from the states? There is, uh, and I think our government, our federal government, is taking that action. But that action has to be more than words. It has to be actually implemented at the ground level to ensure we can, you know, the poorest border that we have for guns is certainly dealt with. When I was a commanding officer of the drug unit, we had situations where, in fact, marijuana was being exchanged for firearms coming up to Canada. So our BC marijuana was going down the United States in the same uh, a route that was utilized or the same system that was utilized was bringing guns back to Canada because there was such a market for those guns from the illicit uh, gang members mainly. Okay, you were talking there about how many people have guns in Canada. You put the number at, at 30 per 100. To me, cash, that actually seems really high. I get the hunting. I know that people hunt. I know lots of folks that do. But why would any kind of guns beyond what someone would need to hunt be needed at all in Canada? Well, people hide behind the fact that they use them for sport purposes and uh, they get some type of rush out of utilizing them. And, uh, you know, it's, it's that extreme attitude that says, you know, they are my guns, I can own them, I can do what I want with them. The fact is, guns cause deaths in our country, no matter what country you're in. In the United States, again, an anomaly, four per 100,000 are killed through homicides of gun. Canada were less than one. Still, we've got incidents. Just look at Porta Peak. Just look at some of the other incidents where people had access to firearms that committed mass shootings and individual tragedies in our country. Do you feel that the federal government's new legislation they're tabling goes far enough? Nope. I'm a unyielding proponent of gun control based on what I saw through my 32 years in policing, in that we continue to see almost daily occurring on our streets, just in regional Vancouver, the gunfire, uh, I think we've got to go a lot stricter. I think we've got to ensure, and I'm glad to see the federal government has given municipalities some control over implementing some type of bylaws to prohibit it, but we need more. We need a collective energy, not only from, uh, for example, our school system and how we develop our kids in our, our school system. We need a collective energy from all levels of government and community to make this happen. Some people in Canada, I mean, the whole world was shook by what happened in Uvalde. It's, it was terrible that these innocent children in elementary school were shot. It's just awful. And some people think, you know, I'm so grateful to live in Canada. That would absolutely never happen here, given our current gun laws. Is that the case? No, it could happen here. Porta Peak is an example of how it uh, occurred here. And that was one individual that went out and created havoc within a regional area. So we could have that, but we've got to ensure that we take all measures so we don't have it. It'll be a sad day in Canada if we ever have to have what Sandy Hook went through or what Rob Elementary went through. I'm a, a father of a young daughter, and I, I, I'm just... Uh, you know, terrified thinking about these situations and what these parents go through. But we as a country, you know, we're more, uh, you know, uh, uh, preventative. And we just need to make sure that we don't get 
caught up in this divisive political debate that's going down in the United States here in Canada. And that's my fear, is if we start to, to, to use that political debate, we start to divide the country further on this particular issue, it's going to result in more gun violence, and it's going to be, it result in more tragedies here in Canada. I think we are starting to see a little bit of that adopting of the divisive political nature of the states. We're seeing it in, in many different areas of, of our own society in Canada, um, to the point that some outlets, some media outlets in the states were saying that people are no longer terrified of guns as they once were, and that media should show more graphic images of uh, tragedies so that people understand what gun violence looks like. What do you think about that? I think that's uh, one aspect that we could show. You recall here in Canada, we were quite successful in the tobacco program where we showed those graphic images of what tobacco does to you when you smoke. And I think this is something, this is just one piece of the puzzle though, Raji. There's so much more we have to do uh, in order to ensure that uh, we don't go through the tragedies here in Canada. Like what? Well, we have to make sure, uh, number one, uh, the government is doing it or appears to be doing it, making sure it's easy or a, a lot harder for people to get guns. They can't have easy access to firearms. We've got to make sure that we educate our kids properly, whether it's with uh, through gun violence, uh, gang activity, or, or drug abuse. Those are all prevention systems we have to see within our school system because, remember, our kids develop those peer influences during the school system. It's the only institution in society that sees our kids now from kindergarten through to their teen years. Some of those uh, influences are negative, and we've got to make sure that we put the appropriate preventive programs within our curriculum. We've got to make sure that law enforcement is able to deal with the situations where people do have have guns. Government is doing their job, Raji, but there's a lot of other people that need to do their job to make sure our kids don't grasp that gun-sick culture that we seem to be seeing in the United States. It's an interesting point. Kashid, thank you so much for being with us this morning. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, great song, but also my producer is making a nice segue for me there to talk about bird attacks because there's a video online of a UBC Okanagan student who was walking back home from class when a black bird swooped down to peck him in the head. Not once, not twice, oh, multiple times. So I'm wondering, is there anything we can do to avoid these encounters? Let's talk to Douglas Graham for more. He's a bird expert and president of the Central Okanagan Naturalists Club. Good morning, Douglas. Good morning. Nice to talk to you. So it's not just me. Birds are swooping people more these days, right? No, I don't think so. Okay. I mean, birds will... are. When they're swooping or attacking people, they're protecting their, their eggs or their young in nests. And birds have always done that. There may be more people around in proximity to nesting birds these days, so we think there's an increase. But, you know, birds, they make a big investment in their, in their, in their nests, and they're going to do whatever they have to do to protect that. Yes, the architecture of those nests is pretty incredible. So I could understand wanting to protect them. But why do birds attack humans? We don't have wings. We're not approaching them. So why do they come after humans who are minding their own business? 
well, we think we're minding our own business, but that's not what the crow thinks or what the bird thinks. I mean, and, and different bird species are really different. Some are, are pretty laid back and, uh, you know, they, they don't attack potential predators. But many species view any large mammal coming near their nest as a potential predator. And so they will attack. And, you know, some species are notorious for that, particularly crows, uh, blackbirds, uh, some hawks and owls, which can inflict serious damage at times. So it sort of differs from species to species. And do we know, Douglas, if this happens more in urban settings or if someone's going on a hike, it might happen just as well there? So I think the attacks on people attack happen more in urban settings simply because there's a lot more people in urban settings. And, you know, the relative number of people out in, in the woods is, is much lower. But um, probably the most, at least from what I've read and experienced talking to people, some of the most serious attacks on people where, you know, a bird will actually draw a little blood sometimes is more with hawks and, and owls, which is actually more likely in a non-urban setting. So it, it, it's a mix. It's, uh, I think we just have a perception it, takes, it happens more in urban settings because there's more people there. Sure. A lot of people laugh it off when they get pecked on the head there, but do people actually get hurt from getting dive-bombed by these birds in urban settings? So I'm not talking about the owls and hawks so much, but more crows and blackbirds. Right. Well, I mean, it's certainly an attack on our dignity, that's for sure. When, <laughs> um you know, I don't. I, I think there are certainly cases where a, a crow uh, or a hawk will make physical contact and you know scratch a head. That's pretty rare. You know, the vast majority of cases they're just swooping down, trying to get rid of you. I mean, their interest is not putting themselves in danger and attacking you. They just want you to wait, to get away from from their nest. So, Douglas, I've been asking our listeners about bird attacks uh, throughout the show, and I've gotten emails from several people who tell me that they have been victim to this many times over their life. Uh, and then, I, I, you know, I've never been attacked. Why do birds go for some heads, some people, and not others? Do we have any knowledge about that? Right. So one, one really interesting thing that's in Vancouver particularly, which you may know about and you, some of your readers may know about, there's an initiative to to track information and to map attacks on people by crows. So it's called Crow Tracks, so C-R-O-W-T-R-A-X. And it's a, a, a guy in Vancouver named uh, Jim O'Leary. And so for several years, he's been mapping the attacks on crow on people by crows and so you can you know just check it out in google and it's 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 really interesting the so that's one thing there is is good information on that and uh, what was the other part of your question sorry oh just i wonder why they go after certain people repeatedly and not others at all is there oh, something right. about is there something that attracts them to certain individuals so Great question. I mean, so generally speaking, it, let's let's talk about crows. They're interested in protecting their nest, and the when there's eggs in the nest, they're going to be quite protective. But when there's young in the nest, and this is generally true of all birds, they're going to be even more protective. The more time and energy the bird has invested already in its nest, the more it's going to protect it. 
do birds so so generally they would attack anybody that would come nearby if, if it's if it's that kind of a bird do they specifically hone in on certain people you know actually that turns out to be true in some instances because and again this is research that has been done in bc crows are crows in particular are really smart and they are capable of remembering the faces of people wow. which has been shown in in careful studies and so if if let's say you show some behavior that they particularly don't like like for example attacking the crow or you know really coming too close to its nest it may in some instances remember you and even from season to season but certainly within one season so if you've been sort of mean to the crow it could remember <laughs> you and uh and, and, and signal you out. That that has been shown to be possible. That is so interesting. Yes, I, I have a sister who's got shiny, dark black hair, and she seems to, to be a target for, for blackbirds, for sure. Is there anything, Douglas, that we can do to protect ourselves? Well, um, not really. I don't think so. I mean, when you sort of understand what's happening, the bird is desperately protecting its investment in in its young, which is its that's the main thing it's doing uh, this summer is is raising young. So the most important area, most important thing to do is is just avoid the the nest area. You know, as long as you're twenty thirty meters away, you're you're the bird is not going to worry about you. So if possible, just stay away from that area. You know, if you can't do that, if it's in your backyard or you know the the street you walk down, yeah, it's pretty tough. I mean. Be patient. Uh, it's not going to last forever. Once the nesting season is over, you know, the birds become much less aggressive. And I don't know, wear a good hat uh, or a hard hat. That's what I would recommend. And kind of respect the right of the birds to be to be doing what they have to do, which is protect their their nests. Douglas, thanks for being with us this Sunday morning. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. And do you want me to sing Blackbird? <laughs> we'll do okay without it. Thanks, Douglas. All right. Thank you. Have a good morning. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.